0: The Hebrew Bible is filled with narrative doubling that can be a challenge to interpret. Through an interdisciplinary model, Joshua Berman offers new insights into how battle reports may serve as oblique commentary and metaphors for the non-battle accounts that immediately precede them. Battle scenes are revealed to stand in metaphoric analogy with accounts of a trial, a rape, a drinking feast, and a court deliberation, among others. Join us as we speak with Joshua Berman about his book, Narrative Analogy in the Hebrew Bible. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Joshua Berman is a lecturer in the Department of Bible at Bar-Ilan University, Israel. His other books include The Temple, Its Symbolism and Meaning Then and Now, also Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, and Ani Ma'amin, a book on biblical criticism. Joshua, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Oh, thank you, Michael, and uh, welcome to all of our listening audience. So, Joshua, tell us about yourself and your family. Oh, wow! So, I am uh, originally from the New York area. Um, uh, I am an Orthodox
1: Jew. I'm a rabbi. I did not grow up a rabbi uh, or an Orthodox Jew. My uh, parents are Jewish, um, but I kind of came to uh, to religion around the time of my bar mitzvah, around the age of thirteen. And um, uh, I made Aliyah and moved to Israel uh, right after I finished uh, Princeton, where I did my B.A. at the age of 23, and uh, I've been here now for 36 years, and uh, did my graduate work at Bar Ilan University, where I teach to this day, uh, recently became a
0: grandfather. Congratulations. That's, uh, that's, that's the short of it. Your book is on narrative analogy in the Hebrew Bible. Would you explain for us what you mean by narrative analogy and what led you to pursue this study? Sure. Okay. So this actually was uh, uh, the published version of my doctoral dissertation, uh, written under
1: uh, uh, my mentor, Professor uh, Edward Greenstein. Within the study of biblical narrative, and for the purpose of our discussion here when I'm speaking biblical narrative, i speaking of Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, um, we find a, a remarkable phenomenon that is subtle and can only really be picked up if you're really attuned to the, 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 the biblical Hebrew and the word plays that are going on. And that is that narratives will echo one another, not merely by explicitly invoking, you know, oh, you know, when we saw this with Moses or we saw this with Abraham, not even explicitly, and not even implicitly by just, you know, kind of paraphrasing a verse that it appeared earlier in Scripture, but that the whole the whole structure of a story um, follows very closely the structure and language of a previous story to the point that it seems to be in conversation with it or making a commentary to it. Let me let me give an example of what I'm what I'm talking about here, uh, because this is an, this is something that I think you know most most uh, uh, most people are familiar with the Bible. but read the Bible regularly, uh, will often be focused on the passage at hand, the story at hand, and might not be attuned to the ways in which scripture is, is broadcasting to other stories. Um, there is a remarkable similarity between um, uh, Moses at the uh, burning bush, Mount Horeb, Exodus 3, and uh, Israel at Sinai in Exodus 19-24. to 24. Uh, we can see how those two narratives follow the same plot structure. That you have the the protagonist, let's say Moses in Exodus three and Israel in in the uh, the Sinai. They both approach the mount. Uh, uh, they are told to make some preparatory uh, 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 gestures to prepare for revelation. Whether it's removing your shoes in the case of Moses, or whether it's purifying themselves case of the Israelites. You have revelation as a fiery, scary sort of thing with the protagonist not quite clear what's going on. You have God speaking to the protagonist for the first time in both stories, uh identifying himself, giving them their, their 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 task, their 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 uh their calling, if you will, uh and moving on from there in both narratives to the protagonist uh kind of rebelling. Uh, Moses uh halfway through the story he gets cold feet and doesn't want to go it doesn't want to be Moses uh uh you know and and uh, defies what god says and god gets ang- gets angry with him and the israelites likewise at sinai uh no sooner do they receive uh, uh the, the 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 tablets and the covenant but they rebel with the with the golden calf and sure enough here too god gets angry and there's kind of a need to to come back to equilibrium so it, it, and there's lots and lots of linguistic parallels between those two stories as well. But this is what we mean by a by a, a narrative analogy. The entire narrative, two entire narratives, are analogous. Which then begs the question: What is Scripture trying to say by doing this? And then that you know that can go in many directions. But that that is the basic observation. And uh, it comes up in many 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 places. I've given you an example of two stories within a single book, but often these narratives these these analogies will cross
0: across books that one book will echo a story much earlier in a previous book. We could even add a third parallel to your illustration when Joshua bowed down before the messenger of the Lord in the book of Joshua.
1: okay that's there's another good one right that invites comparison. you have Joshua in uh in Joshua chapter five, I believe it is, uh, right before the conquest of Jericho, uh, in chapter six, and there too, uh, it's an epiphany. It requires Joshua to cleanse himself or to remove his shoes. Uh there is a calling, etc. Yeah, but it's also somewhat similar, right? Or the splitting uh, or the the crossing of the Jordan River in Joshua chapter three, where the waters are stocked up. Uh, the language there is very reminiscent, of course, of uh, the splitting of the sea. Um, and there, actually, scripture is explicit about it. God says to Joshua, "See, now all of Israel will know that you are as great as Moses, because you are because the waters have stopped, and you are crossing." But it's rare that the that scripture in its exposition gets that 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 explicit about what what we're meant to learn from these uh, these analogies. Um, the 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 Hebrew Bible. I, uh, to my reckoning has about seventy battle stories. By a battle story, I mean not just that a battle had happened, but some description of its of its of its uh, uh, of its flow, of its development, um, of more than let's say four or five words. Well we would call a story. We can say here's a beginning, here's a battle, here's an end. And uh, that's an awful lot of battle stories. There's a lot a lot of battles. You know, it's about the nation, it's about the land, and so therefore there are quite many battles. And uh, what I what I Noticed or tried to uh, or bring attention to was that um, um, in a number of cases, about six cases, where we read these battles and the description is is um, uh, is very detailed of the the the, uh, the unfolding of the battle. that gives the initial impression of uh, verisimilitude. That is, this is the way it happened. You well, know, first they were here. They ran to there. They killed off this number of people. They encircled. Them. Just seems to be a a, a, a description of what was. That when you look carefully at the story that precedes the battle, off the battlefield in the previous chapter, that lo and behold, the the battlefield development, the development of the battle, way it's described, winds up being a an analogy for what happened off the battlefield in the previous chapter.
0: That's what the book is about, that phenomenon. I tried to give six cases. Now let's look at some examples from your book so we can see something of the function and point of these analogies. Would you tell us about the narrative analogy in Judges between the battle against Benjamin and the difficult story of the rape of the concubine?
1: We all recall at the end of the book of Judges, uh, the concubine at Gibeah, uh, where this, uh, this couple if you will, uh, uh, was uh, sojourning and traveling, and they arrived at some place in Benjamin, town of Gibeah, and they were put up for a few nights, and uh, the townsfolk were not particularly hospitable to them. And uh, ultimately, he pushes out his concubine, and the townspeople ravage her and victimize her, and then uh, uh, she winds up getting cut up to pieces, and and, uh, it's really uh, just a horrible story. In itself, that story is already an analogy, analogous to the story of Sodom, uh, with Lot and 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 uh, and and his his journey there and the request of the people that, you know, give over one of their daughters for them to victimize. But for my purposes in this in this uh, in this book, what I tried to show, and we recall that following that story of uh, the victimization of the concubine, that the rest of Israel is absolutely scandalized. That such a terrible thing could have happened, and the rest of the tribes take upon themselves to uh, avenge this terrible crime by uh, taking the tribe of Benjamin to task by going to war against Benjamin. And there's a very long, three long battles that are described there at the end of of Judges 20. And in the last episode there, it describes the kind of the final stand of the tribe of Benjamin as they are encircled and decimated by the other tribes. And when you look carefully at the imagery and the language that describes the decimation of the tribe of Benjamin, lo and behold, it is very reminiscent of the ravaging and the victimization of the concubine by an event of Benjamin in the previous chapter. And so this is what I mean. You have a, a battle story that just for all, for all, for all uh, uh, appearances seems to be just a description. This is what happened on that day on that battlefield. Uh, but then you look and you see, wow, no, this has been this has been carefully crafted, uh, and it's been molded in such a way as to remind you deliberately of the previous story and the previous chapter off the battlefield. What does this all mean? Well, in that particular instance, I think it could be taken in one of two directions. It could be, you know, you all of Israel, you think that Benjamin was was savage. Well, you're no different. Uh, savagery seems to be. Uh, 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 a widespread phenomenon uh, at this time uh, in Israel. Or it could be uh, uh, what we call uh, in Hebrew, midah, midah, measure for measure. That is a frequent form of or fiend or, uh, um, um, in biblical punishment. That is that the, the punishment somehow seems to fit the crime just right. So if the Benjaminites had encircled and ravaged uh, the concubine, then they themselves will be encircled and ravaged. Uh, 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 in, 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 uh, would
0: you offer us maybe one more example from your book?
1: Yeah. So uh, let's see. With with the uh, with in in Joshua's story of Achan. Okay. So we will recall that story. There is that at the end is there's, there's this uh, trial and uh, and they wind up having to stone him. And uh, putting the kind of like a, a cairn of sorts where he where he was where he was buried. And blind find the same thing happens in the next story, uh, which is a kind of corrective following the uh, 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 the battle at I that we have at the A. I. We have uh, the the defeat of uh, of the king there, and the treatment of the king there is very similar to the treatment of of, uh, of A. I. Himself, and perhaps shows that. Uh, you know, now that they have repaired or have corrected that which went astray, so
0: now you can see that things have now returned to a, to a proper to a proper course. So, what are some of the conclusions you draw from your studies? It's this issue of narrative analogies uh, is is uh, is really is all, all over the place, and uh,
1: and uh, yeah, and it always invites really important questions as to what what scripture is trying to do. So, that you know, just to go back to the the example that I opened with. Uh, within the book of Exodus, so what 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 is this about really? That that uh, uh, Moses at 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 Horeb, at uh, yeah, at uh, uh, at Horeb is the same as Israel at, at Sinai. And the truth is is that that analogy goes even deeper because we can see that the the life the of Moses, as it's depicted in chapter two uh, uh, of Exodus, it, mar- it it mirrors the 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 trajectory of Israel. Once they come out of egypt that is you have um uh moses it says it says that he 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 grew and he went out from his house that's chapter 2 verse 11 and that's like israel going out um you have that moses gives a bayach, the word makah, which means which is the word for plague it's the same it's the same root strike he strikes the egyptian and God strikes the, the, the Egyptians. Um, uh, Moses uh, uh, doesn't have any water. And the Israelites in chapter 16 don't have any water. And then, and then uh, uh, Moses winds up in the home of, of uh, his father-in-law, Jethro, who then feeds him bread, and the Israelites also needed bread. And so you have those two those things as well. So that the, the, the analogy between Moses and, uh, and, 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 and Israel is great. Uh, but what of it? What is it meant to tell us? Is it meant to tell us, and, and you know, um, Scripture doesn't give you the answers to these things. You know, this is left for our, our theological imaginations to speculate about. Perhaps it tells us that um, the Almighty uh, works salvation in kind of templates that appear over and over again. Um, uh, uh, that just as the Almighty does salvation this way at this time, so too he will do it. Better. And that is how you will recognize that it is his hand in history. Um, uh, it is the same way that, uh, uh, you know, once you look at the trajectory of, of, uh, of, of, of Jacob going down to Egypt, or Abraham, Abraham's a better example. Abraham goes down to Egypt because of a famine and gets rich and comes back to Israel. And Egypt then, and later Israel, Goes down to Egypt because of a famine. Gets rich on the way out, right? Because three times God says, "Take gold and silver from the Egyptians," and comes back to the land. So it could be that this is that the the analogy here between Moses and Israel is telling us about um, some sort of template about divine salvation, how it works. It could be that this is telling us something about the need for Moses to undergo the types of tribulations that Israel will undergo, because since Moses was raised a prince of Egypt, he doesn't have an identity with the slaves and with the uh, the types of experiences they had had. And so in order to be an effective leader, maybe he needs to first go through all the things that they're going to go through so that he can relate to them, or vice versa. Maybe the people are say well who is this guy you know he's not really one of us yes you know maybe his DNA as it were is ours but you know he's is he's Egyptian he's, he's he's royalty uh and so you know we, we can't relate to him that we can't trust him and he cannot be our leader but if they see that in his own biography that he is he has already gone through the things that they have gone through then perhaps that that enables them to accept him as a leader so there's many avenues
0: of what these, uh, what these analogies uh, might, might mean. Joshua, before we let you go, would you tell us what you're working on these days? Oh, wow. So glad you asked, Michael. What I'm working on now, I'm so excited about it. And I, it's, it's just uh, a thrill to be able to, to
1: share. And uh, I'm sure that you'll... I, I need lots of help with this, one because it's a really fascinating and big question. And it goes like this. Um, the Hebrew word to forgive okay, is the word... Leisloak. That's the that's the uh, the infinitive. Leisloak, the but normally translated as to forgive, and it appears almost fifty times in the Hebrew Bible. What's striking is that all of those occurrences are solely and exclusively between a human agent and the divine, either people asking God for this sliha, what we can call forgiveness, or God granting people Sliha, forgiveness. But you never find anyone asking another person for Sliha. Or you never find a person granting another person slicha. You also never find the word uh, apology anywhere. No one apologizes. There is no word for apology. Uh, um, uh, and really, you never find any narrative where you would say, you would see what's going on and say, yes, they are asking one another for forgiveness, using any term you want. It's just totally absent. It's totally absent. And this seems totally bizarre to us because. We think of the Bible as a book of instruction about how to be a good person, and, and you know we certainly have uh, at least a couple dozen stories in the Hebrew Bible of things that go on in our lives. You know, there's rupture, and then you have to move to repair. Well, how do you do that? Well, we would say, well, you need to apologize, you need to ask for forgiveness and grant forgiveness, and none of that happens in the Hebrew book. And so the question is, what's going on here? Were these people just rude, or what? And, and the answer is, is that is that the the, the conventions of moving from uh, rupture to repair are very culturally dependent. And and you know you and I and probably most of our listeners who run up in the West have something that you know all of us share in common you know, that type of paradigm that I mentioned before. But it turns out that that is a very modern paradigm. That a lot of cultures, even to this day, don't work that way. They do have conventions of how we move from ruptures with air. But they're not the ways that we think of doing it. And so this requires a deep dive cross-culturally to see, well, what are the ground rules that the other cultures have? What does that say about to be human, to be in a relationship in society? And then to come back to the biblical text and to try to read these texts anew and say, so how are these characters moving past the rupture that it had developed between them? And so the forthcoming book is going to be called Without Apology, without forgiveness, the restoration of relationships and people. Is there a publication
0: date in view? Uh, well, to quote Churchill, may- maybe, maybe we're at the end of the beginning. It's been a joy, Joshua, spending this time with you. Thank you for joining us. Okay, good. And I wish uh, you, Michael, and all the listeners, uh, Godspeed. And uh, thank you so much for Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.